Chapter 19. Read by Little Smog, a.k.a. K-Burb. Meet Eduardo Dom, Bomfries, daughter of Alris. Bomfries is the eighth child of Bombor and Alris. The entire list, in order, is Baris Crystal Tongue, Barum, Baror Stone Belly, Bomfer, Bulror, Bofur, Alfer, Bomfries, Alror, Alfries, Bibor, and Albor, and the middle daughter of three. Her hair is the light ginger of her father, but she resembles her mother otherwise, with her large brown eyes and merry smile. Growing up, she was often solitary by choice, as she felt ignored and swamped by her horde of siblings, and eclipsed by the musical talent of her famous eldest sister, Baris, and cooking abilities of her older brother, Baror. She grew to enjoy her solitude and freedom, and often roamed beyond Erebor to be beneath the sky. She loves birds, and is one of the Dwaros who tends to the ravens that are loyal to the mountain. She first took up the bow, an unpopular weapon amongst dwarves, when she was small, and saw the noted knife-thrower and archer Mazim, daughter of Ilga, mother of Gimris and Gimli Elfrend, wife of Gloin, bringing down a great horned owl that threatened the raven's nest. She then begged Mazim to teach her. Her skill was not at first apparent, but she worked hard until she improved. Eventually, she outstripped her mentor to become the finest shot in Erebor, and leader of the small group of archers in the Ereborian army. Blunt, often abrasive, prickly and fiery, Bomfries is often quick to take offense. However, she is loyal and unwavering in all her loves and convictions, and is also likely to be the first one to come to the defense of others. The world was fair, the mountains tall, in elder days before the fall of mighty kings in Thorin awoke the next morning to a knock upon his door. He stretched, and to his mild surprise, his body moved easily and without the lingering dull weight of exhaustion. In fact, he felt far better than he had for weeks. Perhaps there was something to his family's insistence he sleep more than three hours per night. Come in. Thorin? It was Feely, sticking his head around the door. Everyone's assembling in the chamber in half an hour. Erebor and fellowship details this morning. Ah. Thorin brushed the hair that had come loose in the night back over the crown of his head, then sat up. And are you scheduled, Namadul? Yes, uh, Erebor, Feely said. His nephew looked quite excited. Keely's green as emeralds. He's not scheduled until tomorrow. Thorin smiled and swung his legs off his pallet, scratching idly at his stomach. He'll survive, I'm sure. Interesting choice of words, said Feely dryly. Huh. Thorin took up the tunic and pulled it over the sleep pants he wore, before turning back to Feely. Do you look forward to seeing your mother, then? Dad's going with me. Feely leaned against the door jamb. Your hair looks a mess. Do you even own a comb? Some of us do not care for fanciful and impractical braids, my undie, Thorin said haughtily. 
Feely grinned. Sure, that's the reason. Well, I'll see you down at breakfast. Thank you, Feely. Feely's grin broadened and he nodded before he softly closed the door behind him. Turning to his polished brass mirror, it had primroses and honeysuckle embossed around the edges, a piece of work that Thorin was rather proud of. He had to concede that perhaps Feely had a point. His hair was nearly as mad as Biffer's. Picking up his comb, he sighed and began to attack the whole thick, unruly mass of it, cursing loudly when it snagged. Most of his family were at the table when Thorin arrived, though Keeley was not present and neither was Thrain. Feely lifted an amused eyebrow at Thorin's neat cue. I see you managed to wrestle it into submission. Thorin growled and tossed Feely's golden hair in revenge. Feely beat him off with a noise of outrage, and Freren choked out a laugh around a mouthful of broth. You look better today, Frera said approvingly. Good. Eat. Thorin debated saying something, but in the end decided against it and held his tongue. His tyrannical grandmother would only find another way to say, I told you so. He took his seat and ignored the eager stares and whispers that rose from every other Dwaro in the hall. Where is Keeley? Sleeping in, snorted Feely. He said that since he's not needed this morning, he's going to stay in bed as long as possible. I think he's trying to find out if it's possible for Dwaros to hibernate. Thorin grunted, and then he looked at his mother. Adad? Oh, Mahal only knows, she said, shaking her head. He tore from our quarters this morning. Figured he has finally figured out how to fix the grieves he has been moaning about for the last fortnight. It was with a jolt of surprise that Thorin realized he hadn't even known that his father was smithing a new suit of armor. He truly had been neglecting them. Would he welcome another set of eyes? Are you kidding? Freren said. He brought them to Narvi to look at them. Thorin's breath caught, and he coughed for a moment. Narvi, he said incredulously when he was able to speak. And what did she say? Not to waste her time, said Thrain's voice behind him and his father sat heavily in his seat and scowled at his empty bowl. Damned haughty craftsman. Just because she worked with Celebrimbor. Now, now, let it pass. We've all heard it a hundred times or more, said Herrera, and she filled her son's bowl and then tapped his tattooed brow with a forefinger. Stop glowering, my thundercloud. We begin our schedule today. Aye, Thrain muttered and he began to eat as though his broth had personally offended him. Don't understand why it has to be my nephew that goes and defends bloody tree shaggers, came the sound of Oin's voice from somewhere to his right, and Thorn glanced over to see Haban supporting her son, a long-suffering look on her face. Oin weaved a little as he moaned, his balance shifting on his seat, and he was blubbering into a tankard. Groin was face down upon their table and snoring, and the unmistakable shape of Balin's curled shoes were protruding from underneath the other bench. Fundin was seated across from them, nodding emphatically, his eyes unfocused. Damn shame, he kept slurring. Damn shame's what it is. Damn shame. Ah, uh, yes, and there's that, 
sighed Fries. Quite a few dwarves have been trying to cheer up your cousin. It hasn't produced the desired result, but by stone and steel they've certainly wasted a lot of ale in the attempt. Why did he do that? Oin moaned, and he leaned even more heavily against his entirely unimpressed mother. She was holding a flask of water in her hand, and her face clearly showed that she was considering dumping it on his head rather than getting him to drink it. He knows better. Taught him better than this. And, 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 he goes and tells all our secrets to a bloody elf. Bloody son, Dulsthran. He's been taught better. This is what comes of dropping babbies on their heads. They make nicey-nicey with bloody elves. Secrets, you know. Damn shame, said Fundin owlishly. Oin smacked the table with an open palm and then roared. Well, and why shouldn't he? Huh? Tell me that. He's a grown dwaro. So what if it's been tradition for, for a, for a very, very, very long time? Could be good. Could be all part of a plan. Ah, make the weed eaters think better of us. Make them treat us with respect. Blam, Fundin hiccuped loudly and then belatedly covered his mouth. So damn shame. Gimli, Gimli, Oin groaned and he rubbed his hands over his face. Oh, my nephew, my wee badger, my fine Azagith. What have you done? What have you done? Pray, Mahal, he knows what he is doing. He could be the saving or the ruin of us, and damned if I know which it will be. Damn shame. Aye, Oin said, and he sighed mournfully, before his eyes rolled up into his head. Slowly, Ponderously, like a tree being felled, he slid backwards off his bench with a crash and began to snore loudly in the next breath. Thank Mahal for that, muttered Frera, utterly disgraceful. Frerin had covered his eyes and was gasping for air, and Feely was snickering. Thorin hid a smile and shared a look with his father. Perhaps my grandson has the right idea, Thrain said wearily. I should have stayed in bed. Actually, Keeley will be disappointed he missed such a display, Thorin muttered. He'll be gutted, Feely chuckled. Ammunition for centuries. Oin is your cousin. Don't mock him, Freese said, giving their table a stern look. He's unhappy and he has a right to be. His method of dealing with his unhappiness may not be the wisest, but it is preferable to others I might name. Thorin's eyes snapped back to his soup and he scowled. Frerin scooted closer to him and nudged his side with his elbow. Cheer up, Nadad. I'm with you today. They camp at the foot of Amenhen, sighed Thorin, his mind flitting back to the fellowship. He glanced up at his mother. Who else is with us? Biffer and Nori, she said. And at Erebor, your grandfather and your nephew are joined by Vili and Ori. Hmm. Thorin refocused on his food, wondering when he would be able to visit Bilbo again. A sharp pang raced through his heart, and he swallowed his broth with some difficulty. At his side, Frerin was watching him with worry in his eyes. I'm fine, he murmured. Oh, Thorin, my brother, you're such a bad liar. Frerin said gently, 
and then he turned back to his own meal. The others were waiting for them at the chamber of Sansakul when Thorin, Thor, Feely, and Freren made their way through the mithril, diamond, and pearl-studded gates. Thorin nodded to Biffer and Nori. Balkan Galuk, he greeted them, and Biffer grinned. I'm to stay with you, Zabadel, he said cheerfully. I'll be coming and going, said Nori. Biffer's going to be our stationary watcher, and I'll be roving. Somehow this comes as a great surprise, said Feely dryly. He glanced to Thorin as Thor led the Erebor team away, and Thorin gave his nephew a smile in return. Well, let's get going, exclaimed Biffer. I want to see the wee Melekun again. You're as bad as Ori, muttered Nori, and Thorin gave them a quelling look. Enough. We leave. They took their places around the dark glass-like sheet that was the waters of Gimlin's Aram. And Thorin stared and stared at the surface until the stars winked and swirled and came to take him away from the gray world of the halls to the living light of Middle-earth. He blinked the starlight away and was greeted by the eaves of trees and the sound of singing. Turning, he spotted Aragorn humming under his breath as he skinned a rabbit with practice ease. Some few paces beyond, Gimli was lighting a small fire and Sam was unloading his pans and frowning over his little corked bottles of salts and spices. Wouldn't use these on a dog's dinner back at home, he muttered to himself. They've gone a bit stale. You can hardly smell the rosemary anymore. Never mind, Sam, said Pippin comfortingly. I've seen rosemary about here and there. You'll pick up more. Sam frowned, and then his eyes flickered to where Frodo sat bundled in his blanket, eyes gazing thoughtfully into Gimli's merry fire. Now I don't know about that, he said slowly. Seems to me there's going to be a lot less of everything from now on, since we're turning east and all. Frodo's eyes tightened, and he shifted in his blanket. Thorin jerked his head to Nori, who nodded and began to circle the area, his eyes darting here and there. Biffer leaned himself up against a tree and settled down, and Thorin crouched down before the ring-bearer and studied his face. Frodo looked frightened, but also torn as though he was trying to make some terrible, dreadful decision. Behind him, Freren hovered. Is there something wrong with the hobbit? He hovers on the brink of something, Thorin murmured. Something vast and awful. Poor little fellow. Thorin stood. You do not know hobbits, and so you do not know how wrong you are. Hobbits are strong and true as steel. He will not falter. Freren wrinkled his nose. If you say so. Nori returned, satisfied. The elf is gathering firewood, though he does not break any branches and only takes those that are fallen already, he said, smirking. And Boromir has made his way further up the hill to see if he can spy his city from the old watchtower. Ah, no signs of orcs or the servants of Saruman. Nah, nothing. Good. Thorin turned to Gimli, who trudged over to the bank and pulled off his boots, dipping his feet into the shallow waters of the river. His short, broad arches were pale as milk, hidden from sunlight for so long. Ugh, that's better, Gimli groaned. Dragging boats all over the wild is not my idea of a fine time. Rabad, Nidoyel, Zezu, he said, and Gimli's head lifted a few inches. Then he smiled broadly. And well enough, my lord. We have come over the portage way, and now we wait for Aragorn's decision. 
to turn to the south or make for the east. Ugh, Portage, said Freren. Boromir came back, his face troubled. The view is as the legends tell it, he said, and his brow creased. The darkness that surrounds my city grows ever blacker. I must go home and soon. Every captain of Gondor is needed, every sword and spear. Stay with us at least one night more, laddie, Gimli said, for we would have our fellowship while we may, I. Boromir sighed and sat upon a mossy log. His hands fidgeted idly over the great horn he wore at his belt. We will stay here this night, said Aragorn, sitting back against a tree and laying his knife down. He looked out over the overgrown thickets, his eyes distant. This was once the lawn of Pathgallen, a fair place in summers of old. We may yet hope that no evil will dare set foot here. Quite a long hope, if you ask me, Gimli said beneath his breath. No sign of our sneak, said Sam, looking up as Aragorn passed him the skin rabbit, and Aragorn shook his head. No, no sign. I had hoped to lose him on the river, but he is too clever a waterman. I have heard him several times. Frodo shivered and drew his blanket closer. Legless returned, his arms full of dry branches, and he laid them down by the little blaze. Sam tutted and moved the bundles away by some distance before setting out all his cooking things. Watching him, Thorin was struck by the memory of Bilbo fussing over a campfire with Bofur and Bomber, his hands on his hips, scolding them soundly for ash in the soup and goodness only knows what else. If you can't be tidy, be elsewhere, please, and thank you. He smiled to himself. No signs of orcs, nor of the Uruk High, said Legolas after a pause. But the trees move nervously, and they whisper to each other. I do not like this silence. Let us see what Sting may show, said Aragorn, turning to Frodo. Frodo drew the little blade that had saved Thorin's life all those years ago, and to his dismay the edges gleamed dimly. Not very near, and yet too near it seems, Frodo said. Aragorn ran a hand through his ragged hair, his sigh heavy. The day is here at last, the day of choice which we have long delayed. Shall we turn west with Boromir and go to the wars of Gondor? Or do we turn east to the shadow? Or do we break our fellowship and go our separate ways? Whatever we do, it must be done soon. We cannot halt here for long. There was a long silence in which no one spoke or moved. Well, Frodo, said Aragorn gently, oh, I fear the burden is laid upon you. Only your own way can you choose. I wish I could advise you, but I am not Gandalf, though I have tried to bear his part. Whatever your choice may be, we will abide by it. Frodo remained silent for another long moment, and then he looked up. I know I must choose quickly, he said slowly, yet I cannot choose. Give me an hour longer to decide. I will walk and think, and then I will speak. Very well, Aragorn said, looking at him kindly. You will have an hour, and you shall be alone. We will stay here a while longer, but do not stray out of earshot. Frodo nodded, wordless, but did not move at once. Sam watched him as closely as a hawk for a moment, and he frowned sadly. Plain as a pike's staff it is, but it's no good Sam Ganji speaking up just now. 
Frodo stood, and his eyes were fixed on some far distant point as he walked away. Thorin watched him go with a sinking heart, and then he nodded to Nori. Nori nodded back and slunk after him. Now we wait, sighed Aragorn. Gimli dried his feet in the grass and pulled his heavy, steel-bound boots back on, before slumping back against his pack. I wonder what she will choose, he mused. I do not envy him. Such a choice is weighty enough without the burden that accompanies it. He is debating which course is the most desperate, I think, said Aragorn heavily. For they are all desperate, make no mistake. If we should go to Minas Tirith, there we could make a valiant stand. But the city is no closer to Mount Doom and the destruction of the burden than we are here. And how should we keep it here, secret and safe, when such a thing is beyond even Lord Elrond? And East, no. Since we are tracked by Gollum, I think it is safe to say that our journey is already betrayed. Now indeed we must Gandalf most, said Gimli. Yes, said Legolas, and he tipped back his fair head and closed his eyes in sorrow. Yes, we miss Gandalf all the more. Well, whatever he chooses, I shall follow him, said Gimli with a sharp nod of his head. I have come so far, and I say this. Now we have reached the last choice. It is clear that I cannot leave Frodo. And I too will go with him, said Legolas. It would be faithless now to say farewell. Gimli sent him a quirk smile. Aye, it would. Well, Pippin and I have always intended to go wherever he went, and we still do, said Mary staunchly. The dear silly old hobbit, he ought to know he hasn't got to ask, Pippin added. Begging your pardon, said Sam. I don't think it's that at all. He isn't hesitating about which way to go. Of course not. What's the good of Minas Tirith? To him, I mean, begging your pardon, Master Boromir. He turned to where Boromir had been, but the place was empty. Now that's odd, said Mary, frowning. Where's he got to now? He's been acting a mite strange lately to my mind, Sam muttered, before he shook himself. At any rate, he's off home after this, and no blame to him at all. But Mr. Frodo knows he's got to find those cracks of doom if he can. But he's afraid to start. Thorn! came a shout, and Nori came tearing out of the bushes, his eyes wild. Thorin, come quickly. Bormir's gone and turned into a nutter. I think the ring's got him. What? Thorin stood, all his peace shattered. Gimli sat up, a curse dropping from his lips. What is it, Gimli? said Pippin curiously. Legolas's eyebrows were high, but he did not betray any other sign that he knew what Gimli heard. Do you hear something? he said, his gaze pinning the dwarf to the spot. Aye, Gimli said, breathless. Something. This will be the first time a dwarf has heard what a ranger cannot. Aragorn said mildly. What is it, Gimli? Not all, Nori panted. That's not all. There's orcs below the hill. Big ones. But it's daylight, cried Biffer. Orc high, said Thorin grimly. Gandalf warned us. Saruman's army. Orcs, said Gimli, and he met Legolas's eye. 
Vera Orc's coming. Orc, hi. Nori, we find Frodo, Thorn snapped. I leave the orcs to you, my star. Then he turned back to Nori. Now, run! Nori sprang back to his feet and began to charge through the trees, weaving between the trunks. Thorn's boots pounded after him, and he could hear the harsh breathing of Biffer and Frern behind him. Just ahead, Nori managed, and Thorn burst into the clearing to see the man advancing upon the hobbit. I ask only for the strength to defend my people, Boromir spat bitterly, and oh, the pain on his face. Thorin felt his heart constrict at that pain. He knew it so well, oh, so well. If you would but lend me the ring. No, Frodo said firmly, backing away. His feet shuffled nervously through the long grass, and his hand was on Sting. Why do you recoil? said Boromir, taken aback. I am no thief. You are not yourself, Frodo said and he circled around warily, his gaze flitting across a gap in the trees. Suddenly, Boromir's pleasant, strong face was twisted by fury. What chance do you think you have? They will find you, they will take the ring, and you will beg for death before the end. Frodo stood still and stiff for a moment, his face pinched. Then he turned away to leave. Fool! Boromir snarled, his eyes lighting with some hot, cruel insanity. It is not yours, save by unhappy chance. It might have been mine. It should be mine. Give it to me. And he leapt at the hobbit, and his greater weight pinned Frodo to the forest floor. His hands, strong and sure, that had defended them so many times, now scrabbled with curled fingers at Frodo's neck like claws. Give me the ring, he hissed. No, Frodo cried, and he kicked and fought like a wild thing. I cannot watch this, Thorin said through numb lips. Had he been thus, lost to madness and rage and despair? His hands, too, had closed around the neck of a hobbit. I cannot, I cannot. Where is Gimli? said Biffer desperately, searching the clearing. Did he not follow? I, I did not tell him to, said Thorin, and he lowered his head into his hands. No, Frodo yelled, and then he vanished. Frerin bit off a shout of surprise and horror, his head turning this way and that. Where did he go? Where did he go? The ring said Thorin through a throat dry as desert. He has put it on. I see your mind, Boromir bellowed into the air, his head swinging, his eyes aflame. You will take the ring to Sauron. You will betray us. You go to your death and the death of us all. He is a great man and a good one, Thorin said. His mouth was parched and his eyes ached. He is not this. He is not. Curse you. Curse all the halflings, Boromir hollered, and then he caught his foot on a stone and fell sprawling upon his face. For a while he lay as still as if his own curse had struck him down, and then his head lifted. His breath came shuddering through his lips, and his eyes were filled with tears. Frodo, he croaked, 
and his face was his own again. What have I done? Frodo, I'm sorry. A madness took me, but it has passed. Come back, Frodo, please. Thorin had to reach out to grasp Fremen's shoulder because his legs could no longer bear him. Bormir's voice was too familiar, horribly familiar. He knew that crippling guilt. He knew the taste of shame, dripping like lead from his mouth. His brother's fingers suddenly dug painfully into the back of his hand, and he was spun to look into Freren's angry blue eyes. If you are about to think, in any way, that what happened to you was your fault, any more than what happened to this man was his fault, I will strike you so hard you will think you're swimming in Gimlin's Rom for eternity, he growled. You didn't ask to be sick, Thorin. He didn't ask to be sick either. Nobody asks to be sick. It wasn't your fault. Now get it together, Nadadel. With a shudder, Thorin nodded silently and tried to block out the sound of Boromir's anguished cries for Frodo and forgiveness. Where is he gone? said Biffer, his voice soft and filled with shock. I cannot say, Thorin said after a pause in which he collected himself as best as he could. We must find him. The ring renders him invisible, but his shadow may be spied in full sunlight. Nori? Nori did not answer, but sped away in the direction of the waving grasses that covered the slopes of Amenhen. Where now? asked Biffer. He was gripping his beard tightly between his hands. Thorin, Freren said suddenly, panic rising in his voice. I hear blades over there. There are swords drawn. Thorin took a breath, and then another. Then he nodded sharply, and Freren led the way back in the direction from which they had come. This is chaos, he growled, and shook his head to clear his stinging eyes. This is madness, the fellowship. There, Sakhab, Biffer shouted, and they veered to enter into a whirlwind of battle. Gimli and Legolas were standing back to back, and Legolas's bow sang as Gimli's axe covered the sides. The orcs that faced them were tall and broad, with great heavy arms and snarling faces. They were far greater than any goblin scum Thorin had ever seen, and he recoiled from the sight. Each was near the size of Azog himself, though they were dark where Azog was white. Mahal, save us, he breathed, his heart beating a rapid tattoo against his ribs. Mahal, save them, Freren said, high and panicked as a black arrow came perilously close to Gimli's leg, only to be deflected by his spinning blade. There must be forty or more. The hobbits, Thornton said, his eyes darting amidst the anarchy. Where are the hobbits? No sign, Biffer said, and he pulled at his beard again. And the man is gone as well. Perhaps Aragorn protects them, Freren said, a forlorn hope flickering in his eyes. We can but pray it is so, said Thorin grimly, watching as Legolas dispatch yet another of the great orcs. Ah, to your right, Gimli, a crossbow. Without breaking the smooth, whirling path of his spinning axe, Gimli drew Feely's throwing axe from his belt and sent it in a smooth overhand throw to land in the skull of the crossbowman. Freren squeaked and clapped his hand over his mouth. This isn't exactly how I wanted to see him fight, he said weakly. Impressive though it is, Thorin agreed. 
They will overcome here. I trust in Gimli's skills. We must find the hobbits. How? They're impossible to find when they don't want to be spotted. I remember that much, Biffer said. Pippin will show himself, said Thorin after a moment. He is more impulsive. Then Merry will emerge, for he will not stand idly by while his friends put themselves in danger. Where in Doran's name is Aragorn? Freren said to himself in frustration, before he turned and sprinted away through the trees, his eyes peering through the branches. Thorin fell behind somewhat. His younger brother was far smaller and lighter, and therefore more maneuverable than he, and spotted a foot behind a tree. An unmistakable foot, large and topped with curly hair. A hobbit's foot. Freren! he roared as he slowed. I have found one. So have I, Freren's voice hollered back, unseen. Two of them. It's Sam, said Biffer, coming up behind Thorin and puffing. Listen, he's muttering to himself. Thorin bent to hear. Use your head, Sam Ganji, Sam was saying, knocking his hands against his head and frowning mightily. Your legs are too short, so use your head. Let me see now. Bormir went and followed Mr. Frodo, that's certain. Now Mr. Frodo has vanished, and not vanished in any ordinary way. Something scared him badly. He's worked himself up to the decision all sudden, like. He's made up his mind at last to go. Where to? Obviously, Not without Sam. Yes, without even his Sam? That's hard, cruel heart. Oh, brave, gentle little thing, said Biffer. And Thorn shook his head, his pulse thundering in his ears. He may be a tiller of soil, but this one is not gentle. This one is a lion beneath his soft skin. Sam passed a hand over his eyes, dashing away the tears. Steady, Sam, he told himself firmly. Think, if you can. He can't fly across rivers and he can't jump waterfalls. He's got no gear, so he's got to get back to the boats. Back to the boats, now back to the boats like lightning. The gardener turned and bolted back down the hill, the pans on his back rattling alarmingly. Thorne held his breath, hoping against all hope that the sound brought no more of the great black orcs to investigate. To his relief, none appeared. Biffer, follow him, he said curtly. See that he and Frodo do not come to harm. Biffer nodded and ran off behind the fleeing hobbit. Alone, Thorin pressed grimly on. Feely blinked. Erebor was so different to how he remembered it in life that even after 80 years, he sometimes marveled at the change. Gone was the destruction and the squalor, the rotting fabrics and the crumbling stone, grand even in its ruin. Instead, the halls and corridors gleamed and new tapestries, courtesy of Dory's hard efforts as the head of the Guild of Weavers, covered the walls. Carving swooped over the high vaulted roofs and clustered over the columns, their patterns beautiful and intricate, studded with jewels and precious metals. And in the center of all this splendor sat Dine, looking old and tired. Members of the court were assembled on the flanking tiers that overlooked the vast throne room's cavern with its crisscrossing catwalks. Many looked sour and angry, but there were faces Feely recognized amongst them who did not look quite so resentful. Gimri stood, her red hair gleaming, beside her mother, Mizim, and Bofer hovered over their shoulders. His hat was askew and he looked suspiciously at the crowd, his normally cheery face hard and unsmiling. Bomber's sedan was placed behind to the left of the throne, 
and his children were clustered around it protectively. Alrice was gripping her husband's hand, and their eldest daughter, the famous musician Baris, was dressed in the traditional finery of a master performer, her sleeves and hair sweeping the floor, and her eyes shaded by a low circlet of bright aquamarines. They were also threaded through her beard along with tinkling silver bells that rang as she spoke or sang. Dory was standing with the head of the guilds, his high guildmaster's chain about his shoulders, resplendent in red and with a rather ostentatious jewel clasping the midpoint of his beard. Ori was smiling at him proudly, and Feely idly thought that the jewel would have disappeared in a matter of seconds, were Nori still around to see his brother so splendid. Dwellin and Orla flanked the throne as always, looming fierce and broad, clad in their leathers and furs. The only concession Dwellin had made to his illustrious family was the gleam of silver at his ear. Otherwise, he was as he ever was. Orla's dusky skin and great black sweep of hair made her eyes glitter white and dangerous from the shadows. The queen was absent, as was the Stonehelm. With a burst of pride that nearly exploded his chest, Feely's eyes landed on his mother, seated to the right of the throne in the place of the first advisor. Her gray hair was caught up in a jeweled net, and her back was straight and proud. She leaned over and whispered to Dine as Vili came up to stand by Feely. Ah, oh, she looks like a mine full of diamonds, don't she? He murmured. That she does, Feely answered, his heart in his throat. Dine sighed and then leaned back upon the throne, easing his metal foot out a little and shifting in his seat. Send them in, he said and his hearty voice was becoming rather cracked. Feely glanced over at Thror, who was regarding his cousin sadly. He's not long for this world, is he? said Ori softly. He's done us proud, though, Thror said, and his voice was harsh and unforgiving. Done all as he should and more. Sometimes, Feely thought, his great-grandfather was filled with even more self-loathing than Thorin himself. The great doors opened and the Stonehelm entered. The blocky Dwaro was at the head of a small procession of elves, approximately twenty or so, all dressed in soft gray-green. Some had leaves woven into their hair, and Feely wrinkled his nose. What was the point of dead greenery stuck in your hair? Leaves in a bedroll were itchy enough. They were not wearing their bows. Normally, there were no restrictions upon weapons in the throne room. Dine rather liked them, in fact and wanted to know all about them and their makers. But an elven bow within the shot of the king was too much, even for the most liberal of dwarves. The Stonehelm halted before the throne and gave his father a slow, ceremonial bow for the benefit of the traditionalists of the court. He looked up, and Ori nodded approvingly. He's wearing the beads and braids of the crown prince, he said. That'll make the older members of the council happy. He doesn't like them. Feely had never actually had the chance to wear them. Thor grimaced. They're heavy. Those bloody beads catch and pull at strands of your hair. I hated the damn things. Oh. Dine stood with some difficulty as his son said, Hail my father, Dine the second of that name, of the line of Doran, king of Erebor and the Iron. Yes, yes, Dane grunted, and he managed to get himself to his feet. I know who I am, my lad. You look well. Thorin Stonehelm held a smile. I am, Adad. Glad to be home. Glad you're home too, son. Dine gave his son a quick grin before turning to the elves. 
The leader looked rather nonplussed at Dine's sudden lapse in formality. Welcome, my lords, to Erebor. We thank you with all our hearts for your aid in this dark time, against this darkest of foes. King Dine, the leading elf said, stepping forward with a light quick step and taking a graceful bow. I am Lara Fenn, son of Thranduil. Deese's eyebrows rose, but she did not comment. We greet you. Lerofen, Thranduilion, of Erin Lasgallen, said Dine formally. Then he rubbed under his crown and added, And we are bloody pleased to see you. Pardon my language. Not all of your folks seem so warmly disposed, said Lerofen, eyeing the tears of muttering dwarves that lined the chamber. Ay, well, they're always folk like that, said Dine. Am I right in thinking you're the captain of this force? You are, Lerofen inclined his head. Three hundred strong are we, and all armed with longbow and sword and knives. The whispering grew louder. Only three hundred, Feely heard one exclaim. It's barely anything. They're elves. Did you expect real help? Aye, but an elven archer is a real asset. Three hundred is a small force, but it may change the tide. You're a fool and a blind fool to boot. The pale old spider down in Mirkwood only sends us a token to hush us up. He didn't have to send one, let alone three hundred. We're grateful, said Dine firmly, his voice carrying over the whispers. He stepped down from his throne and held his hand up to Lero Fenn, who regarded it warily. Come now, if we are to work together, we must be better than our forebears. I'm but one old dwarf. Surely you can't be afeard of me. With cautious movements, Lerofen clasped the king's hand. As you say, we ought to work together. The elves behind the captain were wide-eyed, and many of them appeared to be either disgusted or horrified. No. Dine let Lerofen's hand go and clasped his own hands together. Let me tell you what we know. Three times this messenger has given us his warnings. The next time we see him, it will be at the head of an army. We will bow to no dark power. Thorin, my boy, come here. Let me lean on you. My leg's playing up again, and I want to walk. The Stonehelm came to help his father as Dine began to pace, his foot clinking against the dark, polished rock floors. Dine put his hand on his son's shoulder and made a clucking noise between his teeth. The ravens tell us that darkness gathers in the north. From Mount Gundabad, all manner of foul things are swarming south, and only Erebor stands in its way. They are not far off, though we cannot say when they will hit. Our best estimate is within the month, though it could be as little as two weeks. It is graver than you know, said Lara Fenn, his blue eyes cool and piercing. Our forests are once more threatened from the south. From the burned-out fortress of Don Gudur comes a dark and chilling reek, the likes of which we have not felt since Mithrandir felled it a long ago. The spiders grow in numbers once more, and the trees huddle together, and the wind speaks of their anger. Messages fly from Imladris and Lothoren. The shadow is growing stronger. Ugh, this is evil news, Dine cried. Then we are not the only land besieged. Lerofen shook his pale head. No, indeed. The terror of Mordor begins to creep into all the lands, and nowhere is there a place that is safe. Dine pulled at his beard in thought. 
his distress still upon his face. We sent to Elrond of Rivendell for advice and counsel, he muttered. We heard none of this. We are not privy to the plans of the elves. Are you not? Lerafen seems surprised. Then I have more news to give, though you may choose whether to find it dark or fair. Lord Elrond convened a council of all free peoples, and at that place a fellowship of nine walkers was formed. They now guard Isdor's bane and have sworn themselves to the service of the bearer. Isildur's, Thorin Stoneheld said, his eyes wide. You told my father that this messenger required news of the Parian, the hobbit known to you in the years of the dragon. Yes. The Stonehelm seemed confused. Yes, I mentioned that. The enemy wants a little ring, the least of rings. But you don't mean to say... Lerafen nodded once, his graceful neck arching. Did you not know what your fourteenth companion had picked up in the deeps of the Misty Mountains? The tears of dwarves began to whisper and murmur, their faces paling sharply and their eyes wide and shocked. Over the rising din, Beaufort let out a great, choked sob of horror, and Gimrys was forced to hold up her husband as his knees quavered. Ah, Bilbo! We Bilbo Baggins! he breathed, his face white as chalk beneath his hat. Bomber was moaning into his palms. The little thing, the little gold ring he used, he wheezed. Varys and Aris copped him gently on his back as he struggled for breath. Breathe easy, Dad, Varys soothed him. Do you need your medicine? I need to know what the elf means, Bomber snarled, and he pushed himself half out of his seat. His bad leg trembled beneath his great weight, and Aris swore and braced him even as his sons moved to support him as well. Speak plainly. Do you mean that the ring of legend named Isidore's Bane in the old rhyme came to the hand of Bilbo Baggins, yes. Lerofen gave a thin smile. And he used it to spirit you from our fortress and to sneak under a dragon's nose. And now a council of free peoples moves to protect the ring-bearer, said Dine. His hand had clamped down tightly on his son's thick shoulder in his shock, and his face had turned quite gray. Who amongst our people walks with Bilbo Baggins? It is not he who bears the thing, Lerofen said. It is passed to a kinsman of his, and they travel on a quest of great urgency and secrecy. The Lady Galadriel would say no more, and nor will Lord Elrond, lest it jeopardizes their safety and success. Who went with them? said Mizum in a dreadful voice, standing forward suddenly. Who? Mum, it wasn't, Gimrys gasped, and suddenly it was Bofor's turn to support her. My younger brother Legolas, said Lara Fenn. Two of the race of men, four hobbits, Gandalf the Grey. The wizard, came the murmur from the tears, most approving, though a few with some suspicion. Mizem stared the elf down with her dark eyes. That is eight, she said in a voice of ice. I hear tell that the dwarf who accompanied them is named Gimri, son of Gloin. Gimri's gasped audibly. Deese clapped a hand over her mouth and Bofor sank back in dismay. Mizem swayed on the spot as though struck. Gim Lee, she rasped, and her eyes closed tightly as her breath hitched, her chest rising and falling rapidly. If you are going to tell me such news of my son, you damned better get his name right. Lerafen's elegant face was expressionless and smooth, but his eyes softened. My apologies, lady. I will not forget. 
Mum, Gimri's cried, reaching for Mizum. The older Dwardom groped blindly for her daughter, and when she had grasped her, she held on to her with all her strength. Mum, shh, it's all right, shh. Gimli's going to be fine. He's far, far too annoying to get hurt, you'll see. He'll be here. He'll be fine. He'll be laughing and leaving his boots in the middle of the corridor and singing those songs of his day and night, driving you mad. Shh, it's all right. Gimri seemed to be trying to convince not only her mother, but herself as well. Her lovely face was blotched, the high-color evidence of tears that were ruthlessly held in check. My son, Mizum gasped, and she buried her face in her daughter's shoulder and shook. Oh no, said Vili softly. Feely tore his eyes away from mother and daughter to see his own mother slowly rising from her seat at the dais, her eyes full of fear. We cannot thank you for this news, said Dees, her throat convulsing as she swallowed hard. Gimli is dear to many here, and it is a hard thing to hear that he may be rushing into the very heart of this evil. I understand, first advisor, the elf bowed, and his luminous elven eyes slid shut. I take no umbrage against the promptings of grief. My younger brother is similarly engaged. I, you mentioned earlier, and so he is. The lady meant no offense, said Dine, and he carefully took hold of Dees's hand. It is a shock to hear this, and not the best place either. Dees, cousin, are you all right? She pressed her lips together, and then she shook her head. I have lost too much, Dine, she muttered to him. I cannot do it again. I cannot. I cannot. Feely sent a helpless look over to where Thor stood, his hands fisting in his great thick mane. Dees, Thor croned beneath his breath, gazing upon the face of his only surviving descendant with guilt and sorrow. A little sparrow she was, with her sweet little voice and her dark hair. Vili's smiles were gone, and he was wringing his hands together, his face creased in worry and pain. Oh, my lovely, he whispered gently. Oh, my Dees, my darling, my steely sweetheart, my lark. It's all right. He's all right. You won't lose another, I promise. Don't, said Feely hoarsely. Don't make promises you can't keep. His father looked at him helplessly for a moment, and then his merry young face crumpled and he turned away. Gimli will do well, said Dine, and he lowered his head and took a deep breath. We will consider our kinsmen later. Fear and worry can wait to be taken up again when there is time and privacy. For now, there is work. What is needed? You are quartered to your liking. Larofen eyed the three dwardams with trepidation, rightly so, in Feely's rather spiteful opinion. The bearer of such news to these three should truly fear for their skin. It is rather darker than we are accustomed to, but it will serve, he said, and Ori rolled his eyes. You live in caves too, he snapped. At least our caves are bigger. Dwalin stepped forward, his tattooed head lifting. Any general changes you can think of, now that you've had a chance to see the defenses, he said without preamble. The corner of Feely's mouth twitched, and he shook his head sadly. Dwalin never did have any time for pleasantries, especially not with elves. The wall sconces will need to be taller for our archers, Larafen said, and a flash of distaste passed over his face. Ah, so he recognized Dwalin then. 
The warrior's face reddened, his chest puffing up in outrage. That can happen, Dian interrupted before Dwelling could open his mouth and smash any chance of working with the elves altogether. What else? We have brought arrows, but more will be needed, the elf continued, occasionally glancing at Dwalin with dislike. Ah, there I have some good news at last, Dyne said, and he squeezed Deez's hand comfortingly. My wife's in charge of the armory, and they've been churning out arrows for the last two months. I doubt we're going to run out anytime soon. Lara Fenn looked astonished. Well, as much as any elf ever looked astonished. Then you are counting upon our agreement. No, Dine sighed, and he let Deese go to rub at his grizzled forehead. Until your arrival, we were convinced we stood alone. The arrows could have been used by our own archers, though no doubt not to the same effect. A spark lit the elf's eyes. You have archers. We do, said Bomber proudly. Led by Bomfris, daughter of Alris, confirmed Dine. As our bows are not as powerful nor as long-ranging as yours, we thought it best perhaps to put our archers at the lowest sconces and yours at the uppermost. Larofen's brows rose. Ah, perhaps. That would be more effective to stagger the reaches, as that way you would be able to coordinate several waves of arrows. What do you mean? snapped a new voice and Bomfries herself came storming out from amongst her many siblings. We could coordinate waves from separate areas without mixing together. All you'll need is a loud fellow or two upon the walls. There'd be no need to mingle. Dine gave her an exasperated look, and then gestured his hand at her in frustration. May I make known the Lady Bomfries? She put her hands on her hips and scowled up at the elf. I want to know what you mean by coordinating waves, she said. It's your fault, you know, muttered Alaris, putting adventures in their heads. She's more like you than me, Bombor hissed back. Don't you give me the blame. If we were to simultaneously release a close volley and a long-range volley, Larofen said, looking down at the young ginger-haired dwarven with faint surprise, we would take out two enemy advances at once. She hummed a little, her brows drawn together, before peering back up at him. All right, she said grudgingly. We'll talk. I'll talk, growled Orla. You'll get back in line, Bumfries. She pursed her lips, but subsided. Dine shook his head wearily, before he motioned to the rest of his court. We adjourn. Lord Larofen. If you would please join us with those of your command you choose in the council rooms after lunch, we can begin a war plan. As the others began to move away, Dine turned back to Dees. Are you well, cousin? He said gently, his old voice rasping around the words. I will not be well until I see him with my own eyes, she said harshly, and turned to where Gimrys and Mism stood in tight embrace. I have little else left in this world to keep me but him and his sister. I could not bear losing him. Gimrys opened her arm from around her mother and said in a softer voice than Feely had ever heard from her, Auntie's? She took a shuddering breath before stepping into the embrace and holding on tightly. Dine watched them with sad eyes for a moment before he sighed deeply and squeezed his son's shoulder. Well, lad, you certainly know how to cause a stir, 
welcome home. Now let's go to luncheon. Thorin was staring after the elves, his mouth slightly open. That, he said weakly. Ugh, not you two, Dine grumbled. Yes, I know you worry for your cousin. I worry too. But there's an entire mountain full of dwarves here, and now to worry over. And they all deserve. No, not Gimli. I worry less for him than for anything that is unfortunate enough to cross his path, said the Stonehound impatiently. I mean Bonfries. Dine blinked. Bonfries. Aye, breathed the younger Doro, a wistful look passing over his face. His blocky shoulders heaved as he let out a long breath. Isn't it a lovely name? Dine looked astounded. Uri looked between the dreamy-faced crown prince and the flabbergasted king and began to giggle weakly. I'm not sure this needs to go in a report, said Feely in a faint voice. Freeze would get a kick out of it, though, Veli added, smiling, though his eyes were still tight with concern. He kept glancing over to where Dee stood, wrapped in the arms of Gimrys and Mism. Bofur was biting his lip, his hat clutched in his ringing fingers, and the singer Baris hovered anxiously. She had been Gimrys' closest friend since childhood, and now she watched with worried expression as her best friend was comforted and gave comfort. Well, they know about the quests now said Thor gloomily, as the Stonehelm helped his father from the great vaulted chamber to the small king's antechamber behind the throne, chattering about Bomfries eagerly the whole time. Thor, Ori, and Feely followed closely, and Veli stayed behind with Dees. They know about the ring, agreed Feely, but not about the plan to destroy it. That old rhyme has caused more harm than good, said Ori, frowning. All anyone needs to do is say Isildur's bane, and all of Arda knows what you're talking about. No dwarf would betray Bilbo Baggins, said Feely firmly. Doesn't matter that they know about the ring. The enemy will never hear it from us. Suppose you're right, Ori mumbled. So, elves in Erebor, huh? Didn't think I'd see that again, to be honest, Thor said as Dine and the Stonehelm reached the antechamber door. Though I did take... Oh. For upon opening the door, four dwarflings came tumbling out, spilling at Dine's feet. There was some muffled cursing in a high voice, and then the lanky shape of Wee Thorin unfolded himself from the pile and froze, his eyes very wide. Your majesty, he quavered. Get off me, you big galoot! You're standing on my braids, how am I supposed to- uh Gimmis also froze, his hand pressed to his red hair and his mouth open and slapped. Oh, no. At that moment, the smallest of the interlopers toddled towards the stone helm and peered up at him with curious and innocent eyes. Apparently, he passed muster because the little fellow said, Up! in an imperious voice and held out his hands. Who? said Prince Thorin, turning back to his father as he hefted the little one up into his arms. The child immediately began to investigate the crown prince's intricate braids and tugged on them experimentally. He winced. Judging from the look upon the faces of these two, I'd say we're looking at this one's wee younger brothers. That's Dwalin's scowl if I ever saw it, and there's Orla's hair and coloring. The littlest one in your arms is Frerin, and this fine little fellow here who is poking at my iron foot is Balin. Am I right? 
Dine said to wee Thorin, who gulped. Yes, sir. Your father will not be pleased. No, sir. Nor will your mother. Wee Thorin's eyes squeezed shut. No, sir. And I expect your father will be thrilled, said Dine to Gimmes, who grinned unapologetically. Yes, sir. Too bad he will leave the matter to your mother, Dine continued, and Gimmes groaned. Please don't tell. We only wanted to see the elves. And did you? said the stone helm, his cheek twitching. Were they all you imagined? They're all skinny and stretched out and shiny, and they don't have beards, said Gimmes in a tone of fascinated disgust. Dine laughed. No, they don't, and I imagine it is a source of great pain for them. Won't happen again, muttered wee Thorin. Promise. Oh, please don't tell. I'll make you a deal, Dine's eyes twinkled. I will keep the secret if you will do me a great favor in return. Go to the kitchens and fetch me back a platter for three, and make sure there's a jug of ale. Then go to the forges and ask for the queen. Tell her it's about time we had ourselves a family meal. Got all that? Wee Thorin's face was clearing, and Gimmes nodded rapidly. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Now scoot, said the prince, putting down the toddling Freren, and take this pair of sticky-fingered imps with you, and don't let us catch you here again. You won't said Wee Thorin, grabbing Balin as Gimmes took Fran's little hand. With a parting grin, Gimmes added, Catch us, that is. Ori watched the little tribe of troublemakers as they skittered away, and then turned to Feely with a puzzled look. So how were that lot related to you and Keely again? Thor began to chuckle. The only sound was the rasp of his breath in his lungs. The trees all looked the same. Alone, Thorin pushed through the trees, searching for someone, anyone. Chaos reigned. He span in circles, his mind doing likewise. A horn call rang through the trees, and then there was a mighty cry. Thorin! Freren screamed, somewhere to his right. He clenched his fists and ran on. His thoughts were a whirl. Some madness seemed to have possessed the fellowship, and they were scattered to the winds. He was of no use. His gift was of no use. Gimli was the only one who could hear him, and he was beset by his own foes and could not help. Thorin gritted his teeth and kept running, following the long, urgent song of the Horn of Gondor. Entering the glade where Fern stood, he stopped in utter shock, as terrible as knives and as sudden as a blow. The two missing hobbits were found. Merry and Pippin stood dumbstruck in horror. Before them swayed the tall form of Boromir. A black-fletched arrow pierced his breast, and he was choking. Around him lay the bodies of at least twenty of the great orcs. Upon a small rise stood the most monstrous yet, his face smeared with white paint in the shape of a hand. His hands gripped an evil-looking longbow with short, strong limbs. Boromir took great, gasping breaths, his face white as death beneath his sweaty hair. Then he gave a pain-filled cry and swung his sword again, his parry sluggish. <laughs> he cannot possibly keep fighting, Freren sobbed, 
and Thorin grabbed his brother and held him tightly. Do not watch, he rasped. Damn you, I should watch, I'll watch, Freren cried, his fist coming down upon Thorin's chest. He deserves that much. As Bormir took out the orc before him, another arrow flew into his belly with a hissing slither. Thorin could not restrain his own cry and watched in stricken mute dismay as the mighty man was rocked backwards, his body failing him and his head dipping forward as he gulped in the air. Blood began to seep from the corner of his mouth. No, 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 Freren said in a whispered, horror-filled litany. With huge effort, Boromir lifted his sword again, but barely had he taken a swing when another black arrow pierced him in the chest. His sword fell from nerveless fingers, and he dropped heavily to his knees. His breath was a horrible, wheezing gurgle. No! Pippin howled and raised his little sword. Boromir, Boromir! Mary lifted his voice and his sword with his cousins, but it was no use. The tall orc scooped them and bore them away as they kicked and screamed. Boromir's eyes followed them with hopelessness and shame flickering in their depths, his limbs too weak to move. He could only kneel and fight for his last breath. The great orc with the white hand upon his face strode towards him with an almost casual nonchalance. Thorin glared at him through eyes blurred with tears and hatred as Freren shuddered in his arms. The orc sneered down at Boromir for a second, and Thorin had never wished so hard for Orchrist, had never wished so hard for life. The bow arms bent, and the orc took aim at Boromir's head as he knelt, trembling and shaking in the blood-soaked leaves. No, Freren whimpered and he finally turned his face away to bury it against Thorin's chest. Abruptly, the trees parted to reveal Aragorn, and Thorin cried aloud in shock and hope. Where in Dorn's name have you been? He roared, and Freren jerked away, swearing loudly. He's here, he's back, he gabbled as Aragorn smashed his sword against the orc's black bow, sending the arrow harmlessly into the ground. Behind him, Nori came racing, his face red and his elaborate braids askew. Found him, he puffed. Took some doing. He's not a ranger for nothing yet. Oh, sweet maker below. Oh, no. Nori's eyes landed upon the trembling figure of Boromir. Yes, Thorin said grimly, and he sealed himself around his shrieking heart. Fern watched the fight between Aragorn and the great orc with wide and frightened eyes. The orc pulled the knife from his shoulder and licked up the blade with a great foul slurp, his eyes locked upon Aragorn's and a vile smile curling his lip. It doesn't care at all if it is hurt, breathed Freren, and his fist bunched suddenly. I want my sword. I would wipe the whole of Arda clean of every orc in this moment. Shh, not Adele, Thorin said hoarsely. Shh. You must feel the same, said Freren turning upon him with wild eyes. Thorin gripped his shoulders. I do. Don't you think I do? But we may only watch. You told me that yourself long ago. But he doesn't deserve it, Freren said furiously. Boromir doesn't deserve such an end. Then his eyes flickered with an old, dull pain. 
He let out a strangled noise and threw his arms as far as they would go around Thorin once more. Shh, Thorin said again, and looked up at where the orc grasped Aragorn's blade, sneering and growling in mockery as he pulled it into his body simply to bring the man within reach. Aragorn's face paled and he stepped back, whipping his blade from the orc's stomach and bringing it around in a lightning-fast circle to cut off the beast's head. Silence fell upon the sun-dappled glade. Aragorn lurched, his sword falling from his hands, and then he stumbled over to where Boromir swayed. He lunged in time to catch the man of Gondor as he spilled back upon the carpet of leaves. He was even paler, his skin chalky, his breath rattled. They took the little ones, he managed through blue lips. Aragorn tore away a strip of Boromir's once fine tunic, pressing it against one of the many wounds that littered his body. The arrow stood out from his chest obscenely, and Nori shuddered violently. Poor bloke, he whispered. Frodo, where's Frodo? said Boromir, his breath hissing through his teeth. Aragorn's shoulders drooped slightly before he answered in a quiet voice. I let Frodo go. And you did what I could not. I tried to take the ring from him, Boromir said, and the self-loathing and utter shame in his voice pricked at Thorin like a swarm of stinging insects. He squeezed his eyes shut and pressed his face against Frodo's hair. I am sorry. I have paid. The ring is beyond our reach now. Aragorn said. Forgive me, Boromir pleaded, his voice broken. I did not see. His head fell back into the leaves as his throat convulsed painfully, and his eyes were tormented. I have filled you all. Thorin could not swallow, and Freren was a heavy, heavy weight in his arms. A hand settled upon his shoulder, and he wished he could turn to Nori, but his feet were lead and welded to the ground. No, Boromir, Aragorn said gently. You fought bravely. You have kept your honor. He reached for Boromir's wounds again, but the man beat him away with a feeble swipe. Leave it, he said bitterly. It is over. The world of men will fail, and all will come to darkness, and my city to ruin. A look of anguish passed over his bloodless features. Tell him. Thorin growled suddenly, a fire igniting in his chest. All he has ever wished for is to save his people. They suffer and die and he watches helplessly. You, you who chose exile, you who could be their salvation. You cannot know how that feels, what it does to a heart. Tell him, damn you, or deny your blood forever. Do not let him die thinking his life and death were all in vain. Aragorn took a deep breath before he said slowly, I do not know what strength is in my blood, but I swear to you, I will not let the White City fall. Boromir stared at him, an impossible light beginning to shine in his pain-ravaged face. Nor our people fail, Aragorn said in nearly a whisper. The fire and tension drained from Thorin in a huge rushing flood, and he sagged against his brother. Nora's hand gripped his shoulder comfortingly. I am Mahadzu Boromir, he said, and bowed his head. His eyelids felt heavy. Our people, Boromir said, and his lips trembled. 
our people. Aragorn nodded once, and Thorin could suddenly see it. The lords of Gondor have returned, he murmured to himself. The lords of Gondor have returned. Then he bit his lip hard as Boromir held out his quivering hand, and Aragorn curled his fingers around the grip of his fallen sword. The dying man pressed it against his chest and fought for his last, agonizing breaths. A sound of soft leaves moving from the other side of the clearing heralded the arrival of Gimli and the elf, but Thorin could not take his eyes from Boromir. The bloodless blue lips were pulled into a wistful smile, the teeth stained with his life's blood. I would have followed you, my brother, said Boromir, looking up at Aragorn with a hopeless, helpless reverence. My captain. His last breath juddered into his lungs, and he breathed, my king. Then the light faded from his eyes. His once proud head rolled a little to the side. Nori made a strangled rasping sound beneath his breath. Freren shook with rage. Thorin turned away as Aragorn kissed the dead man's brow as a king ought. He closed his eyes briefly, feeling the track of wetness seep down his cheek and roll into his beard. Inhaling slowly, he opened his eyes and searched out his star. Gimli's face was horror-struck and slack with shock and disbelief. His axe swung loosely in his hands made numb with new grief, and his dark eyes were glossy and wide, his lips parted and his breath coming fast. At his side, the elf looked strangely confused, his head tilting as he looked upon the sorrowful scene. His face was a mixture of bewilderment and loss. As before, the elf did not seem to know how to approach his own grief. Aragorn stood and let the tears fall from his eyes with no trace of self-consciousness. They will look for his coming at the White Tower, he said softly, but he will not return. The hobbits, cried Gimli. Where are they? Where is Frodo? Legolas paused, and then he gave Aragorn a piercing look with his elven eyes. You mean not to follow them? Aragorn bent and carefully folded Boromir's fingers closer around his sword's handle before he stopped. Then he began to remove the man's van braces, a distant note in his voice as he replied, Frodo's fate is no longer in our hands. Then it has all been in vain, Gimli said bitterly, and his face twisted in anger and sadness. The fellowship has failed. Not if we hold true to each other, Aragorn said, and he looked up. Boromir's van braces in his hands. A new light, strong and fey and full of power, shone in his eyes. We cannot abandon Merry and Pippin to torment and death. You had best hold true to your oaths to the dead, Thorin snarled, and Freren looked up at him with red-rimmed eyes. Brother, he ventured tentatively, and Thorin shook his head roughly. You take up his cares now he said to Aragorn, his heart aching. You must not fail him. No more hiding in the shadows, Elendil's heir. We must tend the fallen, said Legless, and even his light elven voice was subdued and dull. We cannot leave him lying here amongst these foul orcs. We must be swift, Aragorn said, and he bound Boromir's van braces around his own forearms with a firm tug. Let us lay him in a boat with his weapons and those of his vanquished foes. The river of Gondor will take care at least that no evil creature dishonors his bones. Gimli cut several branches and lashed them together, 
and those became a rough beer upon which they carried their fallen friend down to the boats. The green lawn of Parthgallen seemed a different place altogether as they reached the burned-out fire and remnants of their camp. Biffer was standing at the riverbank, patiently watching the distant shore. He nodded to Thorin as they arrived, and then his face paled dramatically at the sight of the elf, man, and dwarf all carrying the body of their fallen comrade. There they go, said Gimli, gesturing with one hand to the boat drawn up upon the far eastern side of the river. May Mahal protect and guide them, and keep them from danger. Aragorn let his eyes linger on the two small forms that disappeared into the trees, and then he sighed soundlessly and turned back to the grim job at hand. Oh, Unkash, Adaroth, Nekosel, Biffer breathed at the sight of Boromir's rent and bloodied corpse. Aye, said Nori, bowing his head. Not a fun way to go. The last three members of the fellowship laid him upon one of the boats, and arranged his sword and his broken horn about him. The spears and swords of the orc clustered beneath his prone form. He looked peaceful and restful at last, Thorin thought with towering resentment, and he wondered where man departed to after they left the light of Arda. Legolas knelt by the side of the boat and regarded Boromir's face with that mixture of grief and confusion once more. He lifted a cup hand filled with river water, and began to wash away the blood smeared upon the man's cheek and brow. Aragorn stood as still as stone, his head bowed. Then, slowly, he began to sing of the west wind, asking for tidings of Boromir that would never come. The blood and dirt had been cleaned from Boromir's skin, and Legolas stood as Aragorn stopped his song. His clear, light, unearthly, elvish voice rose in song, and he sang of the south wind and the sea. Boromir would never come that way again, never ride to his white city with the southerlies racing in his wake and stirring his hair. Aragorn sang again, this time of the north wind. It was a strange and eerie scene, thought Thorin, elvish in the extreme yet profound and mournful for all that. The songs reminded him of Lothlorien, the sour that mingled inescapably with beauty. As Aragorn trailed off, he touched a forefinger to the vambraces tied about his forearms. Gimli was silent, his head bowed and his shoulders hunched as though he were warding off blows. I will not sing of the east wind, he muttered. In Gondor, they do not ask the east wind for tidings, as they are always evil. Aragorn answered dully, We must leave. Nemari, Boromir, said Legolas softly, and together he and Aragorn gave the grey boat of the Galadrim a gentle push sending it into the current of Alduin. Then the elf turned back to allow his eyes to settle again on Gimli. Thorin's star was pale, his face drawn into lines of pain once more. His dark eyes were screwed shut. My friend, Legolas said, and he dropped to a crouch before the dwarf, his expression open and full of sorrow and sympathy. Here. Gimli opened his eyes and saw Legolas's slim white knife offered to him. He stared at it, unmoving, for a long moment, and then he took it in his great, thick-fingered hands, his palms sliding over the hilt. Legolas watched, utterly silent, as Gimli undid the plaits of his bright beard. His hand rose, the white knife glinting, and a swath of red hair fell into the foaming white water as Boromir was carried away towards Raris Falls and Gondor. Oh.
Thank you.